about DeFi is that the, the substance is there. So I, I covered crypto in 2017 and that was all fluff. We've been covering the good and the bad. The next step will be to like really dig deeper and like uncover those like that like digital dirt. Welcome to the Media Jungle Video Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Regeer, coming to you every week to break down the business behind the news industry, the future of media, and the creator economy. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter and our YouTube channel, and don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. We appreciate your support. On this episode, we have none other than Camila Russo, who built one of the most game-changing media publications covering crypto and decentralized finance. I worked with Camila in a previous life when we both were foreign correspondents in Latin America for Bloomberg News. Let's do this. What do you think differentiates the defiant in the way that you cover crypto? And why do you think, why do you think you've had such uh, kind of success in growing the audience and attracting subscribers? When I started The Defiant, this was 2019 uh, after I left Bloomberg. So I left Bloomberg January 2019 to finish writing The Infinite Machine, uh, my book on Ethereum that I published in 2020 with HarperCollins. So I left to finish writing the book. And then in that process of researching um, Ethereum, I saw decentralized finance emerge um, and I realized this is the biggest thing happening in crypto. I think it's the biggest thing happening in finance, like the financial system is being rebuilt using open source technology and smart contracts and nobody's paying attention, like not even like crypto media was covering it. So my approach to, to the Defiant was cover DeFi with kind of using Bloomberg standards, just like covering cover it professionally, objectively. I don't want to be a cheerleader. I just want to tell what's happening, um, interview like uh, sources firsthand, look at the data, just like do what I had been doing at Bloomberg for like the past eight years, but for DeFi with my own newsletter. So that was my approach with the Define, just like every day show up uh, to people's inboxes with what's the latest in DeFi, but in with like a very professional, like objective, like journalism. Um, and people liked it. And that's how it kind of like started to grow. So you took it very serious when a lot of people in the crypto space are kind of just, you know, really cheerleaders talking about like, we're going to change the world. Let's have a DJ party. You actually took it like, let's actually pick this apart. Because a lot of times when I talk with people at crypto, I moved to Miami too. There's a lot of crypto around here. They're mm -hmm. always talking about these ideas and this and that. And then I'm like, what do you do? What's your business model? What's your product? And they sort of just don't have anything to say so a lot of it seems like it's a lot of kind of fluff and ideas and people who it's not like a lot of the people who did it are not do not necessarily come from the tech world do not necessarily come from the finance world a lot of people are like 20 and are like i want to have a job and i could do this and they like the idea of kind of starting a revolution but it like doesn't seem like there's a lot of substance well, in a lot of the that's that's what i like about DeFi is that the, the substance is there. So I, I covered crypto in 2017 and that was all fluff, the ICO market. That was just like tokens flying around <clears throat> with like maybe a website and a white paper, but nothing there. 
DeFi was the opposite. In 2019, there were tons of like actually working uh, applications with users, with volume, and many times they didn't even have a token. So it was like the opposite thing going on. For the audience, maybe you can like in the most simple terms possible in a few sentences, how, what is DeFi? DeFi is decentralized finance. So it's the ecosystem of financial applications being built on open blockchains like Ethereum. So what these financial applications do is they um, automate uh, financial transactions and they take out uh, the need to have uh, third parties um, and kind of humans in, in the equation. So you, you interact directly, you, you take out the need of uh, financial institutions, MasterCard, Visa, uh, you interact directly with programs, with computer code being run on, uh, autonomously and on a blockchain, which means that it's open source, that anyone can verify transactions, um, and everyone can see. It's not MasterCard or Visa in, because you're not giving away your assets to a third party. You're always in control of your assets. So you're not asking um, an institution to take your money and do whatever they need to do with, with your money. You are transacting directly with a computer program and you're, you're never ceding custody of your assets and you're never giving away infor your information. Like when you log, you, you never log in to uh, DeFi applications. Your your like blockchain wallet interacts with those uh, with those applications. You don't need to give out. You don't even need that like like email and password. Like there's no login. It's like you you're just directly transacting with uh, with these applications. It's it's really seamless. It's global. That's the other other thing. Like when you're transacting with in the U.S., you're in this kind of self-contained U.S. financial system. And to do anything outside of the U.S., you need a bank account in a, in a different country. Um, you need to wait five business days for international transfers, pay like 50 bucks. DeFi is a global financial system, so it doesn't matter where you are. And like everyone can access it. In some places, probably like Argentina and other places, it's even harder to move money outside the country exactly. and inside the country. So like in, in DeFi, for example, someone in Argentina can have access to dollars. Like they can uh, buy a stable coin that is, is a, a cryptocurrency pegged to the value of the dollar. And not only that, they can have, they can access a lending platform where they can deposit those stable coins and start earning interest on dollars. Imagine that for an Argentine. That's like mind blowing, you know, or for a Venezuelan or for, for, for someone in Cuba can access it can access DeFi. So this really kind of sounds what I think most people know of Bitcoin, which kind of acts like a currency, right? You can take money in and out. That's basically the decentralized finance part. So Bitcoin is was the first uh, cryptocurrency. It's a, the first blockchain. Um, and it's one of many uh, digital assets. Right now, you know, Bitcoin is, is very volatile. Um, so it, it's, it doesn't it doesn't serve that purpose that I was saying before, like uh, someone in a country that has like very high inflation. OK, maybe they can use Bitcoin as a store of value, but they'd be better off probably using a stable coin like a US dollar backed uh, stable coin than Bitcoin. And that's what uh, this new financial system that uh, evolved after Bitcoin. So I think it's it's uh, like a, it takes 
it takes um, Bitcoin's uh, innovation further. So Bitcoin was kind of the first blockchain innovation. Um, Ethereum and all the DeFi applications being built on Ethereum and other smart contract platforms take the, that initial step further and give it uh, more functionality. So and the, the reason why it can do that is because Bitcoin is built very simply. It's a network that allows uh, the transfer of, of value, but it doesn't allow much, much else. Ethereum uh, and other smart contract uh, blockchains like like Solana, Avalanche, uh, Near, there's like a bunch of others, um, is other blockchains, they allow for a programmable uh, money, which Bitcoin doesn't doesn't allow. They they what's called smart contracts. So instead of just like running money transfers, they run computer code. Like whatever code you throw at it, throw at it. Like you can build applications on top of Ethereum and, and these like next generation blockchains. And that's what enabled the um, the that's what enabled DeFi to be built, which couldn't really be done on top of Bitcoin. You kind of got lured to this while you were in Argentina, a place that's very unstable and has inflation issues. And that makes total sense that finding some other system would work for them. Is is DeFi good for the U.S.? For sure. Like, OK, so I mentioned the use case of uh, someone in Argentina uh, putting stable coins in a lending platform and, uh, you know, getting 5% interest on that that's really that's really attractive for someone in the u.s who's getting like 0.1 percent on their savings they can also go to a DeFi application buy buy stable coins and open a five percent you know interest rate savings account um and not just that just like every kind of money transaction is more seamless like, like i said like you don't need a login like you don't need like five different financial apps on your phone anymore it's like you can just directly log into this uh to this system um and you know DeFi is you know like the the applications that we that we know and use in traditional finance they're being rebuilt in this new system but new applications that weren't really kind of possible before are also emerging like last year there was this big nft boom that's something that you know that just like wasn't possible before in the previous system the ability to have digital like ownership of digital assets like before like you have a jpeg you have like a jpeg file or an mp3 that's reproduced like millions of times and right click. I know how to do it. You do the right right click, right save. click save. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, that's how yeah. I do it. Right. That's an NFT. Not really. <laughs> so if, it's if, a fungible if asset. It's 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 non fungible. So that's you yeah. know that's what you could. But the right have click before. is fungible. Yeah, but I mean, in the same way that you can kind of like take a picture of the Mona Lisa, you can take a picture, but you don't really own it. Mm -hmm. The. The, this innovation allows actual ownership, like provable ownership of digital assets, of something that you mm -hmm. couldn't really have ownership before. And it's allowing artists and like content creators everywhere to actually monetize their work for the first time. So that's just yeah. one example that's taken off of a value 
online of like this is like the internet of value that we're seeing emerge right now one thing before we move on i don't want to get too caught up on the whole uh how DeFi and crypto works but um you know a lot of times when when a new asset class or a new type of thing emerges it starts off like the revolution and then the big money moves in and it becomes normal like right now you mm -hmm. see a lot of uh, institutional investors hedge funds etc moving in does that just mean it becomes regulated and it and it becomes another way of doing the transactions and similar things that we see now yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, right now, like the big money is definitely moving into Bitcoin. Like they, you see all the big uh, hedge funds in, and, you know, money managers just adding Bitcoin to their portfolio. Um, they haven't really uh, come into DeFi yet, but I think, you know, it's, it's a matter of time. Um, and regulators are still kind of grappling with, you know, what to make out of this system because... Like a big, um, like a big requirement for regulation is to is for money services to perform KYC AML, and like I said, these DeFi applications simply, you know, they they don't collect data, they don't collect your data. So they're, they they it's not that they they won't do KYC AML, it's that they can't do it. So. That, that's kind of a, a, a like an issue that regulators are still kind of struggling with right now. Yeah, like I think in the regulation front, like it's like there's a lot of the big proponents of crypto are the ones who are going to benefit the most from crypto. A lot of the big billionaires who make a big, uh, who are tweeting and saying they, you know, they like this crypto or that crypto, they own that crypto. So they're really just, you know, it's not the first time that they are, they have a big way to affect the market and their upside is going to be so much bigger. So it's sort of like there, you know, there is part of this is sort of like a Ponzi scheme where the more people that get in, you're just going to, they're going to, the first people that were in are just going to benefit the most. So it makes sense that they're are going to say this is going to change the world is that concerning if you're equating crypto to a ponzi scheme because there's investors pumping their bags that's the same thing that's happening in the stock market so i mean the crypto is a ponzi scheme as much as the stock market is a ponzi scheme um i would say um but yeah of course like investors are, are buying crypto and, and like shilling their their investments but that happens with with all investments i don't find that to be kind of any different than in, in any other market you you were reporting on crypto you wrote a book about ethereum and then you started this newsletter talk to me about like uh, this we i just launched this podcast too so it's like talk to me about how that was in the beginning and how you started to build an audience and 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 how you got the confidence to go and off on your own yeah like i said i started the defiant um with the view that DeFi was the most important thing happening in in finance and that nobody was paying attention or, or covering it very well so um the the newsletter um just like started to grow very organically uh at first, it was supposed to be um, just like a side job or like a side hustle uh, to what I thought like my main uh, job would be was to be like an independent uh, like freelance writer. When I finished my book, I just decided to go all in on the Defiant because I saw kind of the potential there in both the DeFi space and in what I was offering. So um, I decided to go all in and um, it, it just like 
grew very organically. Like people started recommending it. Um, my my newsletter mailing list started to grow. I added the podcast to it. I then partnered with a video producer who started uh, leading my YouTube channel. Um, and then, you know, like uh, we started getting more and more, like our audience started growing. How many subscribers about? I think I had like around 2,000. Uh, okay over 2,000 subscribers when I, I opened. And w- was that easy, basically. starting to ask people for money? It feels like as a reporter, you're kind of making this transition. You turn into, um, how, 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 did, how was that psychologically? Asking people f- for money, like that wasn't, it wasn't kind of the, the hard part. It was just more like having my own content out there without like the oversight of anyone like without having yeah, the any five editors. editors that have yeah. to approve it at Bloomberg yeah yeah that that was that was a bit scary at first I was like and also just like having my name out there without like Bloomberg attached to it um I I don't know like I, I imposter I always, syndrome yeah that was the hardest part um uh, starting out the define just like being on my own not having any editors not having the Bloomberg name um I was wondering like whether people would trust me um, and they did. And then, you know, after getting 2000 subscribers, I I opened up uh, the like paid subscriptions and started kind of like getting some of the content and people were actually willing to pay for for my own content. And so that was that was super that was super cool. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of like Substack journalists and Substack reporters too who uh, are also looking at making that transition into like video and audio. How was that for you? Because at Bloomberg you were very much a written uh, a print uh, text reporter. Yeah, I mean the the podcast uh, just like happened pretty naturally. I started doing weekly interviews for the newsletter and I was recording them. So I was like, I'm already doing this, so I might as well turn it into a podcast. Yeah, I, I, I still struggle. Like my main like comfort zone is definitely writing. Uh, I don't love kind of talking in front of a camera like like now or like interviewing <laughs> in front of a camera. You don't love um, this? <laughs> I mean, it's not like... I don't think my talent is on kind of talking. Uh, I think it's it's more writing. Um, but you know, I've I've kind of evolved and and learned and like I'm I hopefully getting getting better at it. I definitely enjoy like doing the interviews, uh, but I don't think I'm I'm the best kind of on air uh, person. Uh, but I try. I do my best. I guess what your your differentiator has become sort of that almost that like the seriousness of how serious you're taking a space that often it seems like a lot of the people talking about it. It's like you I, a lot of times you can't get a clear answer that's like balanced. It's always like someone has something to gain from you saying, oh, yeah, like everyone's like mm-hmm. buy Ethereum. And it's like, oh, it's cause that because you own Ethereum. And then exactly. you meet someone from Bitcoin. They're like, buy Bitcoin. It seems like there's so many cheerleaders that mm-hmm. you're like the anti-cheerleader. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can't stand cheerleaders. I can't like YouTube channels that are like just like shilling 
crypto and like telling people to buy stuff and like I, like no that's definitely not us so I think that's our differentiator. Are you critical of a lot of things in crypto? Like I know at Bloomberg, they were they they often pushed you to be um, critical of some of their biggest clients, like J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. Are is that something you do? do? Are you do you guys write hard hitting critical uh, things about crypto, or it's just too nascent that it's not even fair to do that? Um, it's definitely fair. Like whenever there's like something. Uh, wrong like off or like whenever there's a scam or a hack or you know like like a bear market or like regulatory issues or we we cover everything like we cover the good and the bad um i think we we could do a, a better job of of like holding people accountable and like doing just like more investigative pieces just like uncovering dirt like that sort of reporting we haven't done um I mean, in honestly, the metaverse. Like, Are you saying dirt in the metaverse? Yes, like digital dirt. Yes, <laughs> digital dirt, <laughs> uh, pixel dirt. Uh, but I, I really, I, I definitely want to do more, more of that. If we haven't, like, we haven't done it because of like bandwidth. There's like two reporters, and it's just like we're just trying, trying to like cover the bases. So there's not much room for investigative reporting. Uh, but it's not because like there's like an editorial line that like we don't want to go there. We definitely want to go there. So for now, it's just we've been covering the good and the bad. The next step will be to like really dig deeper and like uncover those like that like digital dirt. We we covered in this show uh, the crypt the the Constitution Dow whole mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. thing. What what's kind of your takeaway after seeing what happened there? I think the takeaway is that there's so much potential for uh, for DAOs for decentralized autonomous organizations. It's like people banded together uh, behind that big concept and a big idea. Um, they were able to raise uh, millions and millions of dollars in a couple of days. Um, they coordinated uh, people, like thousands of people uh, from all over the world. They, they uh, pulled capital from all over the world, again, like in just like a couple of days. Um, I think that would have been very hard to do. But then a lot of people lost their money, couldn't get their money out. Gas yeah. fees rose. Like there was all these kind of issues in the execution in the end. Yeah. I mean, we're super early. Uh, I think, you know, nobody is going to argue that like this is the end state of crypto. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tech and UX uh, issues uh, to to be improved. Um, the good news is that, you know, there's very smart people kind of working on that, on layer two solutions, scalability solutions that will make transactions a lot cheaper. Uh, there, I mean, these solutions are live right now. It's not like, it's not vaporware like promises like empty promises, like these scaling solutions are, are live and working. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's a part of the takeaway. It's like the potential is, uh, is huge and it's proven that these are ways to coordinate uh, people and capital and like very efficiently. Um, but there's also a lot of improvement to be done in um in in the execution and specifically on like transaction costs and like scalability issues with ethereum uh and th those are like super well known and uh they're they're being worked on so i think it's a matter of time so you were a, a journalist in argentina for a long time i'm sure for a lot of people that sounds like kind of some mystical kind of job 
Uh, can you share with us the, your biggest mistake that you did when reporting? What was your biggest fuck up in journalism is basically? Oh, okay. I remember like one time that like, um, I had like finished the, the credit column. It was like done, dusted, edited, uh, like end of the day. Um, and then it was just like, just like fact checking for Bloomberg. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, like pre, like pre, like defiant Bloomberg is like the only place I worked at. If, if you don't count like the, the news, uh, newspaper from uh, Chile, but. Um, no, we don't count Chile, no. No, we don't, we don't no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I, I remember this because like, oh my God, I, I, I could have like, I wanted to die. Like I, like it, it was ready to go. And I was just like doing final fact checks. And I realized I had done like just like this very stupid mistake of um, not realizing something in kind of the terminal was in pesos and not dollars. And it oh, was like it was the pesos, not dollars. Yeah, it was like the key of the story. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. It was like like um, some funds, like bond investments, were the the biggest in X. I I can't remember, but like the the figure, like the main like crux of the story. I had assumed it was in dollars and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so... Oh, so your whole case that you it, made it, like, didn't even make any sense. No, I mean, so like the, I mean, I didn't know what It wasn't just a correction. It was like your whole no, it, like the theory, whole thing. The yeah, whole theory was, didn't even make sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember just like, again, like calling Papa being like, oh my God, <laughs> I fucked up. <laughs> Um, and we, we worked it out. It was like, even in pesos, it kind of made sense. Yeah, we had to like readjust, like, sort of uh, so, yeah, like massage Not it a so little bit, this. you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I wanted actually, to die. No, my, my biggest fuck up in Rio de Janeiro, I had mm -hmm. moved to become the economics reporter and I had to go because back then they didn't have like automated putting out the GDP data, the economic mm -hmm. data. So we would go and we ha would have to turn a page in a group of like 10 different reporters and they'd time off. They go 10, 9, 8. And we turn the page and have to say 5.6, oh, 5.6 oh, 5. yeah. on a cell phone. And it was my first Fire. time that I was told to do this. And this is like people automatically trade millions of dollars on the Bloomberg mm -hmm. terminal, depending on if it's above or below expectations. So I was on it. I turned the page. I saw 5.6 and I was like, 4.6, 4.6. Oh, oh my God. No. And I started like, the sun <laughs> fell from the from the sky and the whole no. thing became no yeah no. yeah and <laughs> i don't just, know like, and i thinking knew about it i'm like oh god because and i was like but i actually learned about it i learned um you know it, it was were like, you able to like take it back right away so like, yeah, did it get so published actually, actually no after that i was like stop 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 don't do it don't send it out don't send it out don't send it out don't send it out and then they actually didn't send it out so oh, um oh in the okay, end we changed good. it and we were like a few oh. seconds behind because they count people off on three seconds yeah. Yeah. so i made it and then i and then i like started like doing sort of meditational things and i was like and then i became like the best at turning the page the best financial <laughs> monkey 
you got turned on to crypto in Argentina because there's a big crypto space out there or because it's the instability of the country makes it more prone to a place that would want to embrace crypto? I think both. Like, basically, it was 2013. Uh, Cristina Fernandez was in her second term. Uh, you know, inflation was out of control, as it always is over there. Um, and she had just implemented the harshest currency controls since the 2002 default. And um, at the same time, uh, Bitcoin was in a huge bull uh, market. So in 2013, Bitcoin crossed 100 bucks for the first time, and then it crossed a thousand dollars for the first time. So there was like, you know, as there always is with a crypto bull market, uh, interest in crypto stories. And actually, do you know uh, Rodrigo Orihuela? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, yeah. he was he was in uh, Spain at the time. Um, but he like, you know, he had like obviously his network in Argentina and he he messaged me and said, hey, like I'm hearing that about this thing, like this digital money, Bitcoin uh, is like becoming popular in Argentina. Um, I'm hearing from from my friends. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so I went and checked it out. And, you know, that's how I pitched the first uh, Bitcoin story that I ever wrote. Was there any transferable skills? And on the other side, what ma was was difficult to make that? It, it's a steep learning curve. I don't think there's like many skills that are good for like that you can take from reporting to like building a business. Um, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, it, it helps to know to tell a story, uh, know how to tell a story, communicate a message. Um, that that really helps uh, for like selling your business, like selling it to um, to your audience, to investors. Uh, I think just like storytelling is a very undervalued skill and talent, um, and that's that's helped me a lot in in building the define for sure. Um, but other than that, like it's been a huge learning experience, just like. Um, managing a team like I, I had never done that uh, before I wasn't a team leader or an editor uh, at Bloomberg I was just like on my own uh, reporting on stuff and and now I'm I'm like managing a 17 person team with like in, in different areas like not just reporting so that was I think that's probably the biggest uh, skill that I had to learn like hiring finding the right talent managing people um, and it's been really fun. Like I've, I've really enjoyed building up uh, the Define from scratch and having kind of uh, people on board and getting people excited about um, my dream. Um, so yeah, uh, but from, from reporting, I think storytelling uh, is a hugely valuable. And um, I think, um, I think like, I think not many people realize uh, how how valuable storytelling is. So I think we we writers are are very lucky to have that. And in in journalism, you you always don't you always like try to see cut through the crap, and you try to you 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 see through mm. the sales pitches and that type of stuff. That's, how that's do you make true. that transition to actually become to actually sell and feel good about it? And that's another like great skill, actually, like. Being able to like cut through the bullshit, like we, 
I, I get so many like sales emails uh, for the Defiant and um, and just like like still kind of PR uh, pitches for for the Defiant as well. Uh, and I'm just like I I feel like I'm super well trained to like know what's what's good, what's bad, like what's fluff or, or not. Um, so that's been very useful. Um, and to sell like like my my business is is really content so um it's like for me it's like i focus on making content that people want to consume um and that's my sales pitch so it's not so much about like going out there and, and like selling the defiant as a business like um the the time that i had to do that was when i raised money so uh, i raised 1.4 million seed round um between kind of end of 2020 and i closed around beginning of 2021 um and that was kind of like the the sales like when i had to do sales uh like with a deck and like you know pitching the defiant yeah um but that was fine like i it was just like okay like showing people what i had done like uh, telling people about my vision like it didn't feel kind of like sleazy or anything because i was just like okay like here's here's what i did here's the defiant and okay you either kind of trust me and and think like this thing can can work or not and and that's it like some people were like oh like you're you're juggling too much like because i want to do like um a data platform too. Like I want to build, I am building a data, um, a DeFi focused data platform, like the Bloomberg of DeFi. Um, and so like the main concern investors had was like, you're doing too much. Like you want to do a data platform, you have the content, like you have the, the newsletter, the podcast, like the video, and you want to do data. Like you've never built uh, like a technical product. Like, so, and I was like, yep, I'm doing everything. I'm doing everything. Like, you either trust me or you don't. <laughs> so, yeah. How, how was it as a female entrepreneur, especially in a fi the finance space, which is very male-dominated, hmm. did that create any extra challenges? Um, I think I was, uh, I was pretty lucky. Like, I can't say that it has, but at the same time, like, I don't have the counterfactual, like, I don't know what it would have been like as a male, like, maybe it would have been, like, very cocky and, like, doubled my valuation and maybe could have raised <laughs> a lot more money. But, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, you know, how things have turned out. Like, um, I, I got a bunch of people to, to invest in me and trust me and uh, have, like, hundreds of thousands of people who tune into The Defiant every week. So, yeah, I don't know, like, um, I, I see like a, a lot of just like um, broism and like misogyny on crypto Twitter and and you know, um, but I, I kind of tune it out. Uh, I, I get I used to get before I used to get comments on like interviews or videos I did about like my appearance or something, and that really annoyed me because it's like I'm talking about like DeFi and like finance and all this stuff and like who cares kind of what I look like. Now I don't get that anymore. Um, I don't know if it's because I've aged and people don't focus on that or <laughs> or maybe no, like no, I finally kind of like made a maybe reputation for like, now. yeah, maybe yeah. maybe they actually respect me. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think like it's happened um, so much throughout the years that 
I think I've kind of learned to tune out uh, all of that stuff to the point that it doesn't bother me. What would you, uh, what advice would you give someone who's working at a big news organization who's going to move in and go on their own to Substack or wherever it may be? I, I encourage uh, everyone to, to go for it. I think it's, it's extremely fulfilling to be uh, on your own uh, and like running your own kind of mini media company. I think for me, uh, the thing that, that worked well is uh, just to be uh, constant and consistent. Just like show up every day, hopefully around the same time um, with like similar uh, quality of, of content and then people start to kind of get used to you and, and expect you and you know they 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 want they, they want to see uh, your email in in their inbox um, so just like you know pick a frequency that you think you can keep up with uh, p- pick a topic that you won't get sick of um, explore kind of your voice uh, because people also want that like that kind of personal connection so that's something I had to work uh, on just like you know have my own voice and like strip out all the Bloomberg stuff and like you know dare to have my own kind of analysis and sometimes opinion on things um, and people really value that so yeah I, I, I'd say that like pick a topic that you're passionate about like diving very deep and becoming like very specialized in becoming the expert um, be like show up uh, at the at the same days and times so that people know to expect you and to trust you um and then find your unique uh, voice and way of like covering that topic great there you have it <laughs> um thanks so much camila for yeah. uh, it's great to see you again and thanks for joining yeah this was fun thank you so much for having me Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. By the way, we also are a video podcast where you can see extra memes, charts, visuals about the segments. So you can find that on YouTube or subscribe to our Substack newsletter for exclusive updates. And thank you so much for listening. See you next week.